G'day, g'day, guys. Now, before we dive into today's show, I want to ask you a few quick questions. Are you looking to take your investing career to the next level? Are you wanting an accountability partner who will push you to achieve your goals? Are you needing to surround yourself with successful investors and entrepreneurs in order to up your game and take control of your life? Well, if you've answered yes to any of those questions, I am super pumped and excited to announce that I'm starting the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. This mastermind is a group of highly motivated, abundance-orientated, hand-selected hustlers and entrepreneurs who are ready to take that next step in their investing career. We are now taking applications for the next group of champions. If you're interested to find out more, then email me at info, that's I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com and put in the subject line, The Syndicator Incubator. Being a part of this mastermind group, you will have unlimited access to both myself and my business partner, Andrew Campbell, and you will understand how we have been able to build a portfolio of over 1,200 units worth over $120 million in under 24 months, and we've achieved financial freedom in the process. There are once a month mastermind calls with the group and a yearly conference where you will learn from the best in the business. So what are you waiting for? There are only limited spots, so get your application pack by emailing me at info at And remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Follow the data. Numbers are the closest thing we have to the handwriting of God. So, Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow, and ultimately created extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Logan Motoshami. Logan is a financial writer and blogger covering the US economy with a specialization in the housing market. Now, Logan, Logan's work is frequently uh, quoted in bankrate.com, 
and the Blueburn Financial. And Logan is also a contributor to Housewire as well. Additionally, he serves as a senior loan manager for AMC Lending here in Southern California. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to talk to us about the US economy and where this recession is coming from, if there's going to be a recession. But uh, enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Logan. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Great to, great to be here. Mate, it's, uh, I first met you a couple of months back at a local rear event and uh, you had a you were a wealth of knowledge in terms of the US economy and where we're headed and I wanted this show to, today's episode to be about that but before we do dive into the nuts and bolts do you want to rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid it's a good 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 question to start the show off <laughs> I served ice cream you did when I was 10 years old in Santa Monica and I got a quarter for it and I was really happy I remember that <laughs> so from those days of serving ice creams, walk us through your journey. How have you got to where you are today, which is being a bit of a, a thought leader when it comes to the US economy, particularly in the residential housing space? Well, our family's been in the banking business since late 1950s, and we have our own family mortgage company here in, uh, in Southern California. About 10 years ago, I started to do some financial writing for a website called Benzinga. And from there, I just created, created my own financial blogging universe. And I think my work became popular more to the kind of Wall Street type uh, uh, of media people. So I started to get on more and more shows. And then all of a sudden, my forecasts were coming in good. So with somebody with not an economic background, no ties to Wall Street, kind of one blogging thing led to another. And now I get to speak on uh, housing economics, natural, uh, just general U.S. economics, go to conferences. And I think the body of work that I've done in the last 10 years kind of speaks for itself out here. And I think at this stage of the economic cycle, trying to show what actually causes a recession, when the U.S. will be in a recession is more important to me right now than anything, because we've been, we've just had the longest economic expansion ever recorded in history, but we've also had a decade where people were forecasting recession every 10 minutes. So I think trying to clear that air up with just math, facts, and data has been a lot of fun for me. So did I hear you say you don't have a formal background in finance? No, 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 no degree in uh, uh, economics. I joke with people. I tell people I graduated from Cambridge and they are, they believe me, but no, I was. Uh, uh, I I did take business in college, but you know, I, I had no intentions of doing any of this uh, when I first started. I was just going to be a loan officer and just move with that. But uh, this kind of piqued my interest, and it kind of took off just from one article to where I am right now. So. AMC, you said that's is that a family business? Yes. Got it. And so that was just in your blood to to help the family keep going and keep growing, right? Yes, third generation banker, you know, it's just uh this is what we've done for almost seven decades now. So right. it's just uh family blood right here. So I guess with seven decades under the belt, there's there's clearly some knowledge there, right? There's experience, there's the gray hair, as people like to say. There's been a few yes, cycles in I, that 70 years. <laughs> and it's actually been very useful having a financial background and talking about economics at the same time. I think that's helped me the most, uh, especially discussing with other economists over the years, you know, the kind of that insight in the financial aspect of it has, uh, has not only helped my work, but helped me explain things much better. Right. Well, I, on this show, I, wanna, I really would do want to break it down into its its parts because you know I'm, I'm an engineer. Uh, I, that's how my brain works. And so, do you want to explain to the listeners 
exactly what is a recession? Like what defines a recession if people might not know, you know, from a layman's term, the, the, the Wall Street type, as you, as you like to say? Well, the traditional definition of a recession is back-to-back negative GDP prints, but we kind of have gone to a uh, an area where we think a recession is going to be just some epic crash because the last two recessions have, have had big stock market declines. And for my work in the last 10 years, I've, I've always tried to explain to people, there's no reason to think a recession is going to happen based on speculative theory. But if you actually have a economic model to work with, and which I've done is I've back-tested my economic model going back six decades, it has never failed me one time. So I've been very confident in forecasting no recession, no recession in a decade where, you know, headline sensationalism wins, but uh, my record speaks for itself. And uh, I kind of want to show people why the recession is not here yet and not to worry about it. And there will be a time to worry about it, but let the model show you it first before you listen to uh, more speculative people out there. No, and, I, and you bring up a really good point, and, and I, I, we might as well just address the elephant in the room, is, is the fact that the media, the media, both left and right, are talking like we're going to talk ourselves into a recession. That seems like the, you, know, you say it enough times over a longer period of time, you're eventually going to be right, right? <laughs> yes, it's the, it's the broken clock theory that you know, is eventually, you know, eventually I'll be right before the strike, before 12 o'clock. But the problem is that I think we can go to 12 years of this expansion, which means a broken clock has more economic gain than the American bears have had in the last 12 years. So right. uh, it's just all based on models. There are certain things that have to happen before a recession ha- happens in the U.S., but there's not enough time in the media to kind of explain these things. So my job is to basically relay that and also discuss about the housing market, which is my specialty. Well, and that's why we have this long form interview, right? Is to talk about those things that form, you know, the certain things that need to happen in the market in order to form a recession. So do you want to start with what those fundamental things are? And you talk about your your model and, and relying on the facts and the data. Just start there. Let, let's talk about the underlying, you know, foundations that will cause, could potentially cause a, uh, a recession in the future. Well, in, in, in the past six decades, to me, there's six things that typically have to happen before we could actually start discussing the possibility of a recession. My, I, have caught, I, I have this thing called a six flag recession model and three of my flags are up. I can go over the first three. Number one is the Federal Reserve typically starts its interest rate hike uh, uh, process. Uh, that's very early uh, in the expansion where it doesn't believe it needs to be that accommodative. Uh, second of all, unemployment rates gets to a certain percentage for me in this cycle was 4.9%. That was the second red flag taken off. And the third one, which has been the most controversial one for me, uh, is the inverted yield curve. That's always been something that Wall Street types and media types have loved to talk about. For me, who I, I mean, my work is very, very pro expansion. I kind of forecasted the yield inversion to happen at the end of 2017 for the year 2018, which shocked a lot of people. But I believe we inverted the yield curve in 2018, December of 2018. And we got three rate cuts after that uh, event, but I still don't use the word recession yet because that's just one of the six out here. And a lot of this is based on, I don't believe the 10 year yield here in America can really break out of 3%. I think we've had this last 10 years, people keep on forecasting rates have to go higher, rates have to go higher, rates have to go higher. But if you actually look at a 10-year chart from 1981 going down, 
it's never once broken its uh, downtrend. Mm. And I think that's the one thing I've tried to emphasize over the years that don't worry about higher interest rates. It's not going to happen. Uh, we're not we're not a fast growing economy. The world has these demographic deflationary factors. So rates and yields should be low. So if your recessionary thesis is based on higher interest rates, I would disagree with that. And I think my work over the last uh, 10 years has proven that to be the right thesis. But now going, going ahead, there's kind of three big recession red flags that are left. Until they are gone, I think uh, using the recession word is, is, is way too early. There's a data line called the leading economic indicator. It's about 10 components of the U.S. economy in there. Typically, it goes down four to six months before a recession starts. We haven't gotten that one time in this record-breaking expansion. Housing starts, and I think this, was, this is a big one for housing. Housing starts typically fall into a recession. And in 2018, we had a scare, monthly supply for housing spikes, uh, for new home sales spike. Uh, the entire year of 2019 was used to get rid of the excess supply in housing. But housing starts are back to cycle highs right now. So that recession red flag has not been raised either. And then the last part, which I think is more complicated, is where's the overinvestment? Where is the overheating U.S. economy that when demand cannot sustain itself will create these big supply spikes? Uh, I think the shale boom is a good example. The oil shale boom here in America, oil production and oil, oil, oil rigs really blew up from 2010 to 2015. But when oil prices collapsed, oil rigs came down a lot and we had a manufacturing recession that wasn't big enough to create a u.s recession but for the first time ever we actually did have a manufacturing recession in america because the oil shell boom and busted and kind of came back a little bit when oil prices went up but uh that that isn't big enough to create a u.s recession so there are models out there if you want to listen to them i know they're terribly boring they're not really you know sexy to report but there is a, if you stay away from the ideological right and left and just focus on the data, it gives you better perspective on where the U.S. economy is heading. So, so, so just to re- recap, it's number one is the federal interest rate hikes, unemployment rate, inverted yield curve, uh, the leading economic indications, um, where is the overinvestment, and what was the sixth one? And housing starts. Typically, and housing, housing starts. starts fall into a recession. They, they, they head down out here. And I, and I, you know, I, I specifically back-tested my model to the housing bubble years and you could clearly see in 2006 all the red flags were, were raising back then uh so uh i get that question a lot so you know, if you could go back in in many previous cycles you have an idea that uh, this this typically has been the case always got it and, and and you talk about overheating and and i happen to be in what i consider an overheated market which is commercial multifamily mm-hmm. um and, and the, cons- the, con- the, cons- uh, the contraction of the the cap rate um, through not a lot more building. There's a lot more cranes in the air. There's a lot more, inv- you know, we keep saying, oh, low-cost housing, low-cost housing. We, we need more housing. There's a gluttony across many American MSAs, uh, particularly since the last, last, last downturn, where downtown areas, including our backyard, downtown Los Angeles, had a kickstart. You know, Austin, um, you know, Phoenix, uh, LA, these, these sort of downtown urban cores where people wanted to live and work and party and all that sort of stuff. And so these these massive towers are going up, going up and, and there is seems to be this whole theory of like, well, there's still not enough of it. Um, but in my... When well, it's inter- it, keep going. It, it's, it's interesting because commercial real estate is the one area that I tell people to look at. 
you know, just keep an eye on it out there. Commercial prices were really hot in this cycle uh, uh, out here. They've kind of calmed down a bit, but that is one area where you could possibly see a supply spike. And, you know, then all of a sudden you could see the uh, demand tapering off where people need to start laying workers off out here. The one thing about commercial or, or multifamily, we've had a multifamily boom in the sense that we produced a lot of apartments in this cycle. And we have a lot of cranes. I know here in Irvine where I live, there's cranes all the time. There's commercial buildings right. being put up all the time. The one thing about this area is that we have a very, very big young demographic patch in America. Uh, ages 26 to 32 are the biggest ever in U.S. history out here. Uh, they're kind of just living in seven areas of the U.S. right now. Uh, so, you know, it, it, some of the areas where you see this big building out, you actually do have a very young population out there. But at some point, if that demand does not sustain it, then you're going to start to see prices and rents come down. At that point, I would get concerned. That's why I always tell people, commercial real estate, you need to keep an eye on it out here. Also with the auto, uh, auto uh, sales sector, because adjusting to inflation, car sales was the only consumer debt that actually was positive in this cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, consumer debt was actually really light. I know people think because nominal debt is back to all-time highs, but adjusting to inflation, car sales is the only area that's been hot. It's been the best five-year period for car sales ever. So if inventory management doesn't uh, work itself well, you know, any kind of real downturn in demand could create a supply spike. So those are two areas I always tell people to keep an eye out on. Right. And, and look, I think you bring up two really good points. One point I want to, I want to, I want to dive into both of them. What, what, the first one we talk about is, is the, the youth, the, the millennials, right? And, and this whole, um, not theory, but it's true that the baby boomers are retiring, right? And they're at their, their peak spending years where they've got kids in college, they've got the house, they've got the three cars, they're, 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 they're spending money and thus the GDP, just the economy is going forward. People are, people are confident. Um, and then there's a gap, right? And, and, and Gen Xs aren't as big of a population. They've got the, the millennials who are now coming into, which I'm a millennial, I'm coming in to buy my first house. When that millennial shift comes and we start buying more houses and getting out of the multifamily space, is that when you would see a concern or is that when potentially something could be coming down the line? Well, here's the one thing, and it's actually something I talked about with HousingWire recently. Um, we have a barbell economy. And a barbell economy means we are income is very heavy on one side, and then it's yep. very heavy on the other side. So, with you know, with with millennials and home buying, one of one of my big thesis long ago, I said that housing will be better in years twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty four because everybody does uh, take longer to do things. We 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 rent, we date, we mate, we get married, and then three and a half years after marriage, we have kids. That, in, that means years 2020 to 2024 would be better for home buying. So a lot of the things I talked about eight years ago, even, I said housing starts will never hit 1.5 million until the years 2020 to 24. Uh, purchase application data, which is a heavily tracked uh, data line here in America, um, it won't, the index won't hit 300, which basically means it's really at 1999 levels until years 2020 to 2024. We're, we're almost there right now. So we have a good shift of young people coming in, but we still have a very young population that will always rent. Mm. Because when you have a service sector economy, a lot more jobs do come in that kind of the lower income bracket. And these will never be homeowners. Right. Uh, uh, they will simply be, a lot of them will be renters for the lifetime. So 
The question is, are we building the proper amount of apartments for that lower income bracket? There's where I think the discussion never goes because mm. if you're, you know, college educated Americans typically or skilled Americans make a lot of money when they're younger compared to other sectors, when they pass on, who's going to fill that void? I think that's the question for me that I'm, I'm looking to see, you know, because, uh, you know, here in Los Angeles, I think 50% of the adult workforce are dual renters in one household. Mm. So you have a lot of roommates, not just with people in their 20s or 30s, but in their 40s and 50s as well. So there's just, there's just a lot of, lot of, a lot of income, but not the right kind of income to keep the man going. And rents, rental inflation has been stable. If it was, if there was an affordability crisis, it would be a deflationary event. Right. You know, rent inflation was starting. We, we're, we're not there yet out there. So rent, rents are, are holding up. On the upper end, though, you kind of see rents really being impacted in some area. I know New York is having trouble, you know, uh, uh, with some of their with some of their condos out there. So. Those are the things I'd be keeping an eye on, but we still have this massive young population that'll be renters in their 20s, 30s, and 40s out here. But dual income Americans, when they buy homes, that double income power can give you home buying. And I think we just have a very unique decade where we just have a lot of young Americans who are gonna get married, who are gonna start to have kids, kind of like what the baby boomers were, but the baby boomers did it much younger. I think. Mm-hmm. Average age now to get married is really between 28 to 29 now. So this is the push into that area where housing has an unbelievable demographic stable patch for the next few years. And so, you know, you don't have a crystal ball. What do your tea leaves say? Where, where, where we had, where, where, when is it? Give, give me, throw a dart and, and hit. <laughs> I, I, I think the next four years in America is the safest housing patch we'll see uh, in our lifetimes. Because not only do we have the biggest demographic patch, we also have, I, I always say this, this is the unsung hero of this, of this expansion. We have the best homeowner profile, loan profiles ever in our history. Uh, if you look at the New York Fed uh, data, uh, 760 plus FICO score Americans who own homes are at the highest clip in the 21st century right now. Uh, there's no exotic debt in the, situ- uh, in the system anymore. These are very stable homeowners and we have a very young, educated, skilled group coming behind them out here with rates low and inflation low, that gives you a very stable uh, uh, economy for housing in that sense. So it, it took us a while to get here, but the next four years, we have the demographics, you have low rates, and you have uh, first-time owners who you know, can move if they wanted to. Uh, and I think that gives you a secure blanket for housing for the next four years. I'm interrupting this episode to remind you guys about the Syndicator Incubator Mastermind Group. If you want to take your investing career to the next level and surround yourself with the best in the business, then apply today. Spots are filling up fast. I'm only taking a handful of people for the next round, so get your application by emailing me at info, I-N-F-O, at reedgoosens.com. Remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Now back into the show. We, we spoke about uh, your six six indications of what a recession is, but let's let's dive a little bit deeper into what causes those six to be a re- to, to raise that red flag. And what I'm talking about here is is stuff like um, you talk about owning a house. So you know we, we hear a lot about in the media about oh well, kids got too much debt. Um, you know uh, wages aren't going anywhere, but the cost of living is going up. Um, all this sort of stuff that, you know, confidence in the consumers, you talk about car sales, 
you know, what, what are those underlying factors? What are you seeing uh, aggressiveness compared to 2008 where it was these sort of, you know, ninja loans that everyone was getting there, putting their hand up for one? What are you seeing is sort of that underlying theme that could be potentially the, it's, the, the, it's, the boiling pot? It's funny because what happened from, I would say, 2002 to 2005, the exact opposite is happening right now from, let's say, 2018 to 2020. And I think when you were at that conference, I showed you that adjusting to inflation year over year, real home prices were negative last year in America. That's using the equivalence of rent. There's no overheating housing cycle. It's, and there's no uh, record-breaking demand. And if, 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 say, I don't believe in the student loan debt crisis. Right. I think it's, it's more, of a, more of a political fabricated story. Right. College-educated Americans, the highest unemployment rate they had during the Great Recession was only 5%. They're at 2% now. The majority of student loan debt is actually under 17,000. Uh, very few people actually have, compared to the total, uh, have student loan debt over 200,000 out here. So if you finish college, you're doing okay. Mm -hmm. If you took student loan debt and didn't finish college, that's majority of the bad uh, data we have in this is those people who took on debt and never finished because they never got the income capacity. So I think well, the in income profiles, I think wages are at all time highs. If you look at it, and, I, and, and I'm actually writing about this this week, um, per capita income is still higher than home prices. If you actually look at uh, uh, U.S. per capita income versus home prices, uh, it's still higher. We're catching up to where home prices are going to pass it, but it's nowhere to where they were in the housing bubble. But the main difference is that mortgage rates are much lower now than what they were from uh, 1996 to 2005. So here's where the problem for housing could occur. If the 10-year yield gets above 2.62% or if mortgage rates get above 5%, housing has problems, okay? It's happened twice in this cycle. Now, I don't believe the 10-year yield can get above 3%, but if mortgage rates ever got back to 5.875, that is where I think housing has affordability issues. And I've used that model for the last eight years. I don't think we're gonna get there, but that would be a problem because every single housing cycle that we've had have had 2% plus mortgage rates uh, to, to, to help demand go. For that to happen in the next cycle, we need one and a quarter to two and a quarter mortgage rates. That means the 10 year yield here is gonna go negative with duration. I think that's gonna be difficult to happen here with the US with our kind of economy, but um, higher mortgage rates is gonna be the issue if it does occur. I just don't see it happening because the world economies aren't really growing that fast anymore outside of a few, a few, few countries that are much younger than all of us. Demographic deflationary factors have kept inflation pretty low. So it's a kind of a stable period right now. But if rates ever went up higher, all bets are off mm. out there because uh, all my models show that housing has issues, you know, when because we get of affordability. And what you're really saying is money's cheap, right? And so, so when money's cheap, people think that they can get into the market and they can you know, a, a $2,500 mortgage is probably what you're going to pay for a two-bedroom, you know, apartment here in, in LA. You could probably get into a, into a house. So you can get here. The, the, thing with, the thing with coastal areas is that it's so expensive here and you could see it in the sales data. California home sales, in theory, is considered a hot market because the prices are, but sales have gone nowhere for 10 years. 
Mm. You know, they've roughly been flat. When, when, when the 10-year yield gets above 2.62, we get a little weakness, inventory goes up, and then rates come right back down and it stabilizes the market. That kind of wave with interest rates, what it really means is that we've been between 35 to 4.5% for the majority of this time in this cycle. That has kept housing stable. If rates ever went up higher, then you have issues. You'll start to see supply grow up. You'll start to see homes take longer to sell. You'll start to see home price being cut. But here's the kind of the one factor that's much different now than any other time in history. People are staying in their homes much longer now than ever. And because of that, because it's, not, it's by choice now so much, some people can't move up because it's too expensive, but some people just stay in their homes 10, 20 years. Now, I think the housing industry doesn't want to talk about it because they don't want to normalize that behavior. So they created something called the mortgage rate lockdown. <laughs> this, is something, this is something economists and people on TV have used for eight years. The theory is that mortgage rates are so high that people don't want to move. When I think about this record expansion, the one thing I don't think of is high mortgage rates. So they always say, well, when mortgage rates come back down, inventory will be released. The exact opposite happened. Inventory grows when rates go up higher because demand gets weaker. And then when it comes back down, the demand gets gobbled up. So as long as the 10-year yield can stay low, we're going to be okay. This doesn't mean sales are going to go booming. This doesn't mean housing starts are going to go booming. But it's just kind of stable right now. And it's, it's, I think it's hard for people to talk about a stable housing market because we're told that home prices are so high that we have an affordability crisis. Well, if we had an affordability crisis, purchase applications wouldn't be at cycle highs right now. Right. You know, so it's just, it really is that mortgage rates have stayed low and are staying lower. And now the demographics are coming in. So it just stabilizes the market. Do you think the 2020 election is going to have much of an effect on the overall uh, confidence of the consumer? I think some businesses might want to wait to see who's going to be president, but you know, I'm not a big fan of, of using presidents and relating it to the economy. You know, right. when, when President Obama was reelected, everybody said, you know, he's a socialist, the US is going to crash. That didn't happen. When, when President Trump became president, they said, oh, it's going to be a wreck. And pretty much if you look at the economic data in an honest way, the economy roughly looks the same all the way around. Yeah. So political economic theory is, is not a favorite of mine. I always say politics is the word itself. Politics, many blood sucking parasites. So you can get lost in ideological discussion yes. and totally forget how to read economic data properly. But now, of course, we're almost at that time. So it'll be interesting to see um, from what I'm gaining, how the market is looking at this, if the more popular Bernie Sanders gets in the primaries, the more the marketplace believes Trump's going to win. Mm. And I think that's, that's, that's how I'm reading the bond market or how, how I'm seeing it so far. So a lot of people were worried that if Elizabeth Warren was going to win, that maybe the healthcare industry would, would lose a lot of profits and jobs would be lost. Don't put too much weight on what politicians promise wait to see what they deliver mm -hmm. before making any macro things. So it's just going to be a lot of, I, I talked about this before 2020, this year is going to be headline driven galore. Yep. And that was before the coronavirus happened and missiles being shot in the Middle East. So it's just, 
it's, it's hard for people to ignore the noise and look at the data, but I, I just think it'll be interesting. You'll, you'll have some violent moves maybe in the stock market or the bond market, depending on who's, who looks like they might win. But I, you're, you're going to have to wait to see what a president actually could get done before making big macro changes in any forecast. Um, just for, for the layman's out there, what are you, the average pundit, the average investor, what is your advice for them? A couple of handful tip, tips and bits that they could look at and read and follow in order to make sure they're keeping their finger on the pulse as best they can. They're not all as educated as you, but they just want to see some of the waves coming. First of all, uh, everyone should create a budget, you know, before, because, because what I see people, uh, you know, investing for yourself is the best thing for any young person to do because you have to think of the long term. But create a structure where you're not overspending, so you can you can invest in either real estate, you can invest in the stock market. Everything else, you know, is is kind of more marketing. But if you cannot create the fundamentals backdrop of your cost of living to allow you to facilitate some money to an investment. Uh, you're doing you're doing yourself harm long term because a lot of people have nothing saved or no investments at all, you know. And, and for some of those people, it's just because they don't make enough money. But for mm -hmm. some people that do have some excess money, uh, create a financial structure for yourself. Focus on that. Budget yourself. Know know your limits on spending, and read as much as you can out there. What do you recommend? Obviously, your blog. <laughs> well, I, I always say this. My Facebook page, my Instagram page, my Twitter page, everything is open to the public. I don't have, you know, um, a, a, a podcast. I don't have a paid subscription. Everything is open to the public because what I want to do is I, I, I'm fortunate enough that financially I'm doing really well. I can do this without uh, 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 charging people. I just want to educate people. I'm an old high school basketball coach from the last century. You know, uh, if, if I can educate people on what's going on in the economy, it takes the extremes away. And kind of my thing is that I'm kind of against the extreme right and the extreme left. I thought this last 10 years, they've kind of embarrassed themselves. So uh, read people who don't have an ideological slant and just follow the data and look at the historical perspectives of a data. I always say, ask an, ask an American bear his recession model, see what answer you get. And some people have just some really crazy answers. And most of it is they hate the Fed, you know, and gold's <laughs> going to go to 10,000. You want to stay away from people that hate the Fed and think gold's going to go to 10,000 because it, that's more marketing. So read for yourself and don't be afraid of economic data. I mean, who I mean, you, I'm, who, who do you like following? You know, obviously you've got your own finger on the pulse. Who do you like to keep? Uh, obviously you're an influencer, but you, who else do you look at? You know, there's, 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 one person, his name is Bill McBride. He works for, he does calcul calculated risk. And he's very boring like myself to a degree, but he shows you how the data is. I don't follow a lot of people uh, on Twitter. I, I don't follow a lot of people on Facebook. I, I, I try to stay away from everyone, but I look at all the data. Mm. You know, I look at all the reports. So I follow the census, the BLS, the stuff like this. So I don't really read too many, too many people's stuff. I just kind of keep it to my own and track the data. If you really want to do this, all you, I mean, all it is, is if you did this for two months, you'd be amazed how much information you would get because it forces you to read these reports 
and see what the reports say out there. So ignore humans, follow numbers. <laughs> what reports you know? are you talking? Uh, are you referring to? Hmm? What reports are you referring to? Oh, um, for for example, uh, retail sales is a good one to get a, uh, an idea where the consumer is. Um, one of my favorites, again, leading economic indicators comes out once a month. It gives you a, a broad look on many different uh, uh, economic data lines. Housing starts, you know, it's very crucial. You know, when housing starts fall, definitely that that's such a huge red flag that you're going into a recession out here. Keep an eye on the 10-year yield out here all, always, because as long as rates stay low, you know, the economy gets good. The, the kind of the storyline is when interest rates rise, people say, well, that's, you know, because the economy is doing great. Typically, interest rates get to the highest point before a recession happens. So, no, be careful of that out there. Um, so retail sales, you want to look at consumer confidence index. There's four of them out there. The Michigan, the Builders Confidence Index, the Small Business Confidence Index, uh, the Consumer Confidence Index out here. So I track all of them on my Facebook page. So if anybody wants to see them, they're just, I just put them up there. I try not to talk on Facebook, except for Facebook Lives, just so people can look at the data. Because if you actually just show charts without talking, people then read. And then when they read, they can see that, whoa, wait a second, that doesn't look that bad. Or, oh wait, that does really look bad out here. So the, the less talking from humans and the more math and facts data numbers is, is such a positive out there. And you can really convince people by just showing them charts rather than trying to uh, talk them into a belief. I, I love it. I think the relying on the numbers is so important and, and we get so caught up in the media and the, the advertising of it and people's opinions because that's what social media is. It's just people giving yeah. their freaking opinions all the bloody time. You know, it's not actually, yeah. and to your point where you just, you don't actually give any commentary on it. You just say, hey, just look at this chart and read it and see what happens. Yes, uh, and, 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 and I just wrote an article today, um, a recession red flag update because so many people are taking the coronavirus, which is a horrible event, uh, first, uh, uh, and then trying to make it a a, a recession thesis right away. Right. Yes. And it, in that article, I show I showcase my my six flags. I show charts out here. I say, listen, we've never had a recession until these things actually get negative together. So um, follow the data. Numbers are the closest thing we have to the handwriting of God. So that's how <laughs> I look. love it, mate. Last question before we dive into the top five investing tips is what What's your plan personally and from a business point of view for 2020? What's the, what's the outlook look like? My plan uh, basically is to focus more on the later stages of this economic expansion than ever and showcase, if we do go in a recession in 2020, which I don't think we will, is to kind of explain to people, look how people react during a recession and don't make the same mistakes that people made in 2008 and 2009, getting out of the stock market altogether, being afraid of ever investing. I mean, so much of the stock market gains for people throughout history, they always stayed in the market. I think if you missed like 25 days in the last 50 years, a bulk of your gains are actually gone. So on an investment perspective, slow and steady wins the race. Your investment money should not be money that you're actually paying your bills on. So uh, uh, let time work for you out here and uh, a lot of my economic work focus is to really get into the nitty gritty about uh, the macroeconomic data now because it is an election year. We have a lot of crazy headlines. You're going to see politics take off like no other right now because this is probably going to be the most political year we've ever had in our lifetime. But stay focused. Stay disciplined.
Awesome. Love it, mate. Love it. Well, at the end of every show, we, uh, we get into the top five investing tips. Ready to do it? Sounds good. Let's go. Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Uh, getting up at four o'clock in the morning and looking at the list that I created last night. <laughs> you're, you, you early to bed, early to rise? Early, early to bed, late, early to rise, late to bed, but make sure the game plan works. Old coach habit, write it down, Got it. get up early in the morning and go for it. Love it, love it. Who's the most influential person in your career? Would probably have to be my high school basketball coach because he taught me that if you have a leadership personality, that means you have to represent you with class and intensity uh, and you have to show that you care for people. And uh, at age 14, that stuck with me all the way now and it's kept me away from ideological people out there. So my high school basketball coach, my mentor uh, has, has taught me a lot and I put that, those principles into my work in economics. Awesome stuff. Uh, in your business, do you have a tool? And when I say tool, I mean, it could be a phone or it could be a software. What is the most influential tool in your business that you use on a daily habit, daily, you know, daily practice? Facebook. Yeah, right. Okay. Facebook. Facebook, Facebook is, I mean, uh, I, I don't follow people's posts on Facebook. I've unfollowed every single person that I, that I do. But um, I, a lot of my stuff is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram every single day. You form a discipline and you keep yourself known out there and it doesn't cost you anything. Mm -hmm. All it is is time. If you can focus your time on efficiently using it on social media sites, it is, it is an unbelievable marketing tool that, uh, that people in this generation have that you've never had in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So use it. Uh, uh, and every single day you should be doing something on your social media sites. That's awesome. Love it. In one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from that failure? My biggest failure was not following my desire for economics at a young age and um, not going with that, waiting until I was in my uh, 30s to, to kind of go back to where I should have been. Mm. Uh, and I thought it would be too hard. And that was my biggest failure. I thought, you know what? That just seems too hard. I love it. I'm really passionate about it, but it just seems too hard. And I wish I could go back in time and, and do that over again. Now, I've had to self-teach myself, you know, for the last 20 years, but it would have been easier for me if I started at 18 rather than really focus on the data uh, at a much later age. But I give yourself some credit. I feel like you, because you are self-taught, and you have that desire to learn, desire to change at a quote unquote later stage in life and 30 when you're pivoting, it probably made you the guy you are today as well, right? It probably made you that more hungry to, to it, go out it and get is, it. And it forces you to be disciplined because, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times, especially five or six years ago, people go, well, who are you? You're not an economist. <laughs> you're, you don't work for a Wall Street firm, anything. After the last five years, I don't hear that question anymore. Right. You know, I get to I get to go speak at conferences. I you know Bloomberg Financial. I do the housing, the national housing preview every year now out here. It took a lot of time, but what it what it focuses on, you can't be wrong. Mm. You know, it's a, if you have a huge title, you're granted many things you could be wrong. When you don't have that, that hunger to be right every single day, and that's part of being an athlete growing up and being very competitive. You want to win every day. 
but if you're if you're trying to get up and play with other economists out here and and, I, and it's been really fun for me because i've got to i've got to know a lot of the national housing economists personally but they all have degrees and they've all had to spend that time me it was just 24 7 looking at data and making sure you can't screw up big time because right. once you do people say well you never had a degree now i think after the last five years i've i've, I've gone past that stage but yeah that hunger to always want to win, I would say it's probably my number one uh, advantage because that's how I look at it every single morning when I wake up at four o'clock. Every it. single day has to be, you know, you want to defeat everyone. <laughs> you want to defeat everyone. I love it, mate. Last question for you. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to follow you on Facebook. They want to be in your circle. Where do they go? You, it's just my name. If you just type up Logan Motoshami. Uh, my blog is loganmotoshami.com. My Facebook page is Logan Motoshami. My Twitter page is Logan Motoshami. And my Instagram is Logan Motoshami. Every single social media site has some form of daily information, uh, free to the public, open to the public out there. Uh, Instagram has short videos. Facebook has tons of charts. There's over, I think there's over 800,000 charts on Facebook on my page out there. So I, I document everything. Uh, I do Facebook Lives, Twitter. I do a lot of conversations with other economists out there. Uh, and even my LinkedIn, my name, there's, uh, there's tons of information and data out there. So just my name, if you just want math, facts, and data, uh, there it is. If you want ideological people, I'm not your guy, you know, but, uh, uh, but yeah, just my name out there. It's on the websites. There's tons of Google pages out there. So they're all open to the public. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. I'm just going to reflect a couple of things that I learned from you in today's conversation. I think the biggest one is relying on facts, data, and not listening to humans. I think that is the most important thing. But also the six the six flags, the Fed, unemployment, inverted yield curve, um, uh, the leading economic indicators, where's their overinvestment and housing starts. I think that's really, really important for people to, to look at. And there's some great advice you gave on to what you need to look at in terms of re uh, retail consumer confidence and, and, and the 10-year uh, yield curve. All those sort of pieces of information can can create a puzzle that you can put together in your own economy um, to then put back to what you said earlier about creating a budget. Don't overspend. So you can invest. You can create money for the long-term future. And then not being reactive, I guess, is another one. When a recession does come, not putting your hair on fire and get, jumping out of the stock market or doing something silly because everyone else is telling you to do it. So I think it's the discipline, back to your discipline, I think is probably the biggest. Slow and away. steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. And I, I love what you said here, that if time is the most important thing let time work for you and i think yeah. that is that is super important and so many people even in real estate in my game they want to double their money in three years and it's like that's not where we were that's that that was in 2010 we're now 2015 we've got to have a long-term investment focus but mate did i leave anything out no um uh that's everything's there and and, and especially for that uh, six recession flag model which i'm known for i uh, i wrote an article today it's on my blog at logan motor show me.com all the charts are there to showcase the historical uh back testing model of that data line out there so people can visually see what i'm talking about because i think a lot of times when people visually see charts and they get to see what i say i think it makes more sense and uh, i've gotten so many people aboard on this the last two to three years out here that they're starting to ignore the extreme right and left and that to me is like my sign of victory that yeah, I don't want to listen to those people anymore. I don't want to listen to those people anymore. I'd rather listen to the math facts and data. 
Right. Love it, mate. Love it. Well, look, I want to thank you again uh, for coming on the show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up thank very, you. very soon. You too. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Logan. Please do jump over to his website at loganmotoshami.com or on Facebook or Instagram because he is packed with information that you guys need to get your hands wrapped around. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. We're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and remember, go give life a crack. Thank you.